consequences are dire. Anyway, back in the back in the 1970s, let's get this out of the way. Back in the 1970s, um, uh, the IRA put a bomb inside a pub and blew it up, and a number of people were killed. And the police were under pressure to make an arrest, so they went and rounded up four Irishmen who lived in London, Jerry Conlon and a couple of others, uh, three others, and um, said, you guys did it, threw them in jail. And then they found out that Jerry Conlon had an auntie who lived in, Ireland, in, lived in London named Annie Maguire, and they went and arrested her and her husband and her children and another fellow who was just in the house at the time and said, you were the guys who supplied the stuff to make the bomb. You were the go-betweens for the IRA. And they went to trial, and the first four said, look, we had nothing to do with it. We were in this park with a fellow named Charlie. Find Charlie, he'll vouch for us. Uh, but the police said, we can't find a Charlie, you've made it up. And then the auntie's family said, we know nothing about making bombs, we don't have any connections to the IRA. And they said, well, we found traces of nitroglycerine on your fingers. So we've got proof that you were handling the materials to make a bomb. And they were found guilty... And the judge said, if I could give you the death penalty, I would, but I can't. So here's a life sentence. And they're all sent to maximum security prisons. The problem was, none of them had anything to do with it. They were all entirely innocent. And it wasn't until 15 years later that somebody started looking into it and they saw that uh, this Charlie guy did exist. Police found him. Police did an interview with him. But they hid the interview, they hid the file so they could get a conviction. And then they found out that these guys didn't have any nitroglycerine on their fingers. That was entirely made up. And they were all set free. Now, almost all of the 11, of the 11 had their lives ruined by this experience. They were traumatised, they became alcoholics. Most of them have already died, they all died quite young. All except for Annie Maguire. Annie Maguire found a way to forgive, to forgive the British and to forgive the police. She had spent a large chunk of her life in jail. Her children, one as young as 13, had been put in a jail, but she forgave. And just before he died, she, he died, John Paul II uh, gave her the Bene Marenti Medal for her remarkable ability to forgive. And that's what we're talking about today, forgiveness. How do we develop a remarkable ability to forgive? I certainly don't have it. Uh, a few weeks ago I went to the corner store to get some milk and they had uh, a little paper bag of red frogs and I thought I'll get some red frogs for the kid, kids and they wanted to charge me $4.50 and I was so offended I haven't been back to that shop since. So that's how pathetic I am. Well, I'm guessing you're somewhere in between me and Annie Maguire. How can we develop a remarkable ability to forgive? Well, first of all, let's look at what forgiveness is and what forgiveness ain't. All right? What forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. When somebody wrongs us, they hurt us, they damage us, they take something from us, we kind of earn the right to retaliate, to hurt them back, to take something back, to even things out, to get even. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? We earn the right to retaliate. 
Now, most of us, most of us are pretty good at not getting some kind of dramatic revenge, you know? We don't go on a revenge quest like they do in the movies and say, that person's going to suffer. Most of us opt for a more subtle response, which doesn't seem as dramatic, but in many respects is no less harmful. We tend to uh, push people out of our life. We minimise them in our life. We give them a cold shoulder. We stop speaking to them or at least stop making an effort with them. We minimise them in our life. And by doing that, we punish them a little. But really the main motivation here is to minimise the hurt, right? Because if someone hurts you and you say, well, actually, I'm going to make you not very important in my life, then what they did to you becomes less important in your life. Minimise the person, minimise the pain. It's a kind of pain management technique, the old cold shoulder, right? But this, I'm afraid is not a sustainable way to live. Unforgiveness is not a sustainable way to live. I'm going to give you three reasons. The first is this. Look, sometimes boundaries are necessary. Sometimes if you've got an abusive partner, put up a boundary. We will help you do that. Absolutely. But the fact of the matter is, everyone is going to hurt you at some point. Everyone you know will hurt you at some point. And if your only method of dealing with people who have hurt you is throwing up a boundary, you're going to find yourself isolated pretty quickly. Every person's fallible, every person's going to hurt you. And if your only method of dealing with someone who has hurt you and dealing with that hurt is throwing up a boundary, you're going to feel yourself isolated very quickly. You can't maintain relationships, you can't maintain community without forgiveness. Number two, second reason this doesn't work out for you. What goes around comes around. If you're an unforgiving person and you've got a reputation of not forgiving people, people are far less likely to forgive you when you mess up. And you will mess up. When it comes to forgiveness, what goes around tends to come around. And number three, when you don't forgive, when you push people away, you harden up. Your heart hardens up. And yeah, it does become better at shutting out the awful stuff, like the anger and the sadness and the pain of being hurt and damaged by someone. Yeah, that does lessen. But so does your ability to feel love and joy. Your hard heart repels those things also. So unforgiveness, it doesn't work out for you. It's no good. We need a better way. And when we forgive, we deny ourselves the right to retaliate. We say, I won't shut that person out. We say, I won't tell my friends what they did so I can humiliate them a little bit. I won't even fantasize about revenge while I'm doing the washing up. I will deny my right to retaliate. And when you do it that way, you hurt a little bit more. You do. Because you're choosing not to hurl that hurt back in the other person's face. You're choosing to live with that hurt. So you feel it a little bit more. But, but, by not throwing up the boundaries, you maintain relationships. You maintain community. You don't isolate yourself. 
And by being a forgiving person, you're far more likely to be forgiven by others. If you're gentle and forgiving with others, then you're going to quite naturally be more gentle and forgiving with you. And importantly, your heart stays tender. Your heart stays tender. And yes, it does experience more hurt, but it can experience more love and more joy. You're staying open to the things of the world. And in time, those hard feelings of hurt, they go away. They go away. Under the first method, you're just suppressing them. Under the second method, you deal with them. And it can take a long time, but they do go away. Tim Keller says that forgiveness, this is a good, good line, forgiveness is granted first and felt later. So you don't say, I forgive you, and then all your hurts just disappear. No, forgiveness, you grant it first, and then it's felt later. It takes time for the feelings to change, but they do change. They do change. So it's very important that we get good at forgiveness. So how do we do it? How do we become remarkable at forgiveness? Well, throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament, forgiveness is frequently linked to the forgiveness that we get from Jesus. Our ability to forgive is linked to the forgiveness that we get from Jesus. Can we get those Bible verses up there, fellas? I've taken three. I could have taken a whole heap more. Look at this first one. This is Paul writing to Colossians. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And then he writes to the Ephesians. He says, instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. And then the third one, this is Jesus speaking in the Lord's Prayer. He says, forgive us our sins as we forgive anyone who sins against us. And the key word there is as. Simple word. Saying just as you are forgiven, we forgive others. The two are linked. And the idea is that the more you understand that you are forgiven, and the more you know that reality, the better you will get at forgiveness. If you were to draw one of those diagrams, and like, you know, one side said ability to forgive from 0 to 10, and then the bottom one said sense that you are forgiven from 0 to 10. As one goes up, the other would go up. Like a causal relationship, is that what it's called? Something like that. I don't know, I'm a statistician in here. As one goes up, the other goes up. And it's like the more you realise that you failed and you really, really need forgiveness, the more sensitive you're going to be to the fact that other people need forgiveness and the more humility you will have, which helps with forgiveness. And the more you know the joy of being forgiven and how wonderful that is, as that increases in you, you'll be more and more willing to share that joy with others. Another way to think of it is, I found this helpful, is as if there's like two realities and you can't live in two realities at once. And Walter Brueggemann explains that uh, the world was all about deeds and consequences. You do the crime, you do the time. You've got to pay for what you've done. That's how things work, deeds and consequences. But then Jesus came along and gave the world this uh, 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 injection of forgiveness. And he said, now this is a world with forgiveness in it. There's two realities and you're going to live in one. And you might be living a life of deeds and forgiveness, but then when Jesus forgives you, your reality changes. You are a forgiven person. You're like a, a, 
formative experience is, uh, is to be forgiven. So it makes less and less sense to go back to the deeds and consequences thing. They can't coexist. If you're forgiven, you must forgive. Another way I thought to explain it was, you know how some people say, oh, that's un-Australian? You know, like if you're driving along and a policeman gets you and no one flashed their lights to give you a warning, it's un-Australian. You can't do that, it's un-Australian. And you're not necessarily saying, oh, that person's bad. You're saying there are certain things that an Australian does. When you're an Australian, there's certain things that you do. And if you're not doing that, there's something wrong with your Australianness. all right? But you can kind of say that being unforgiving is unchristian. Not because it's bad, though it is bad, but because if you're a forgiven person, forgiving is part of your forgivenness. Perhaps that's just made things more confusing, but you can kind of see where I'm going. The bottom line is this. If you want to get good at forgiveness, you've got to get forgiven. You've got to look at the cross you got to think of all the things that you've done to betray God, to offend God, all the times you've turned your back on God and gone your own way. And see Jesus dying for your sins so that you could be forgiven. And the more you know that, the more you get that into your gut, the better you get at forgiveness. And you might not ever get a medal for it like Annie Maguire. But when you, when you behold how remarkably forgiving God is, you will develop a remarkable ability to forgive. Amen. Amen.